Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. I ran away from home precisely one time in my life. I was probably 11 or 12. Uh, I can't tell you the circumstances uh, that led to the fury uh, inside of my little body that drove me to leave home. But I can tell you, I was probably just fed up with my overbearing parents. So I walked out of the back door, through the backyard, hopped over the fence, through the woods, and onto the street behind my neighborhood, set to experience for the first time in my life real freedom. I had concocted the perfect plan. Uh, They were building a neighborhood, a new neighborhood right down the road, and I imagined I could probably live in one of those half-finished houses for a while. I would be well taken care of in my new home, away from my overbearing parents. Life was good. I was free. Out on my own in the world felt really, really great. And it was going very well. Thank you very much. Uh, Until dinner time. And then I realized perhaps home wasn't so bad after all. And I returned home, walked in the door. I expected to be greeted warmly by my parents, concerned about my well-being, but my mom played it super cool. Uh, She didn't really respond at all. She said, oh, dinner's in a few minutes. You want to go get washed up? And that was it. Maybe she didn't notice me storm out and slam the door. Uh, or maybe she just acted like nothing happened on purpose, uh, but it was a little defeating. At some point, I think in all of our lives, we've had the thought, I would be better off on my own. All of us have this idea that we want to throw off the things that really restrain us. Uh, Our parents, teachers at school, social expectations, religion, the morality of my upbringing, my hometown, I got to get out of this place. And we believe that our lives would be better if we were completely in charge of ourselves. If we got to decide what we held to be true. If we got to decide what was good and bad, what was right and wrong. If we just could get to the place where we didn't have anybody else telling us what to do, we would be free and we would be happy. Jesus in Luke 15 tells a story about this exact situation. I I started it last week. We're going to finish it up this week. This story is famous. It's about a family, a father and his two sons. The younger son decides to rebel against his father and leave home. It's often called the story of the prodigal son. You can find it in Luke chapter 15. We'll pick up in verse 11 in just a second. In fact, the story's been told so often, it's so famous, that we've come to think that the word prodigal means to be rebellious. But that's actually not what the word means. The word means to be wasteful. And what we see in the story is this wasteful or spending hungry son. Let's let's check it out. Verse 11. This is Jesus teaching to a crowd. He says this. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he, that's the father, divided his property between them, that's the two sons. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, 
took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property with reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So the story goes, these two sons, the younger one comes to the father and says, give me my share, my share of his inheritance. I don't know if you know this or not, but usually you get the inheritance after a parent dies. And so he basically says, I want what's coming to me. I don't care if you're dead or alive. You can imagine he's been plotting this for some time. He's been thinking, the real problem in my life is my dad. He's so demanding. He's the one that's been preventing me from being the real me. He's withholding this place, this town, this farm, this family. I've got to get out of here. Tim Keller says the younger son was saying essentially that he wants the father's things, but not his father. His relationship to his father has been a means to the end of enjoying his wealth. And now he's weary of the relationship. So what? He just wants the money. Dad, he says, I don't need you. I just need some of that cash and I will be good on my own. Then Jesus says he went to a far country. He doesn't just leave home. He leaves home for real. He goes far geographically to a place where he would be free from the reach of his father and his family. He goes to a place that's far relationally. He's going where no one knows who he is. No one goes, oh, you're the son of so-and-so, or aren't you, aren't you a part of this family? He's thinking, I want to go somewhere where I can be free of all of that stuff in my past. And he goes far religiously. He's going somewhere for a Jewish kid where there's no Jewish holidays, no festivals, no customs, no sacrifices, no synagogue. Be the equivalent for many of us going, I'm going somewhere where I'm not forced to go to Sunday school, vacation Bible school, youth camp, summer camp, ever again. I'm not doing it. He wants to be completely free from the guilt and shame of his religious upbringing or the constraints of the way that he's been raised. It's really freedom that he's after. And not the apple pie fireworks free from the British sort of freedom. The freedom of personal autonomy, where he gets to make his own decisions about what is right and wrong, who he is and who he's not. Freedom from the restraints of his father, his village, his responsibility, his religion, and other people's expectations. He just wants to blow town. And it all seems really great until Jesus just uses this little phrase, he began to be in need. He finds himself in a place where his freedom has not bought him freedom, but the constraints of poverty and having nothing. And so he ends up with a terrible job feeding the pigs for a Jewish kid. You can imagine in the crowd, they would have responded to this. Shock that he would be at a low point to to feed these unclean animals, to violate himself in such a way. Now, none of this is surprising to us. Not only have you heard this story before, but you've heard this story over and over and over again. Sure, the characters change perhaps, 
But it's not a surprise that a teenage son would rebel against his father. Jesus' audience had heard it. You've heard it. Come on. Their frontal lobe isn't fully developed yet. They don't understand cause and effect. They don't get consequences. They feel invincible. We're not surprised by his recklessness or his wasteful living. We've seen it. MTV, VH1, every rock star ever, right? We've seen the story before. You can only make so many withdrawals when you're not making any deposits. It's not surprising. And yet, we rarely think of our relationship to God in these terms. So Jesus teaching a parable to teach us about the nature of who God is. The short-sightedness of the younger son throwing off restraint and chasing after his dreams of freedom is evident to us in the story, but our own short-sightedness is rarely ever evident, evident to us. We rarely realize the many ways that we are often more like this prodigal son than we would care to admit. I told you last week one of my favorite novels is Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. It's probably because she's from middle Georgia and I'm from middle Georgia and I feel a kinship to her. But Hazel Moats, the main character, is trying to flee from his religious past. And so you know what he does? He buys a car. Here's what he says in the book. Nobody with a good car needs to be justified. What does he mean? As long as I have my freedom, as long as I have this car, I can go where I want, I can be what I, where, who I want, and I can do what I want. This car for him is a symbol of freedom from his past. He says, as long as I have it, I don't need to be justified. He's using that term religiously. What he means is, I don't need to have a right relationship with God. What do I need God for? I got a car. The world is at my fingertips right now. And we likewise say that about a whole host of things, maybe not a car. But we say, I don't need to be justified. I got money. I don't need to be in a right relationship with God. I've got my dream job. I finally, Brandon, I got the girlfriend of my dream. I don't need God right now got a boyfriend, I got a spouse, I got whatever fill in the blank. I've got freedom to be whoever I want to be, and this thing is delivering me there. See, you and I, when it comes to our relationship with God, are often like the younger son in that we want the good life, but we want it without having to worry about being good with God. And this story is as old as time. In fact, this story goes all the way back to the very beginning. Adam and Eve, the first created couple, living in fellowship with God. And in Genesis chapter 3, they say, we don't need it. We would rather be free to make our own choices. We would rather be free from restraints and constraints. We can do this better on our own. And that story has been repeated in every single one of us over and over and over again since the beginning of time. All the characters change. The circumstances might be slightly different, but the heart is still the same. We all, in one way or another, look at God and say, I don't need you. I've got it. We want financial freedom. 
And we want it without having to listen to God drone on and on about the dangers of money and greed and how it could turn us into monsters, to people we don't want to be, to people who neglect our families so we can close a deal, to people who cheat on our neighbors so we can make a buck. We want freedom from the feelings of guilt and shame, but we don't want to have to listen to God correct our behavior all the time. And so it's much easier to ignore the rules or deny the truth or decide for ourselves what is good and what is bad. To pretend like there's no reality when it comes to right and wrong. There certainly isn't a God who's going to hold us accountable for what we've done. They're not wrongs after all, they're just mistakes. We want the freedom of expressing who we are, but we want to acknowledge that we were created uniquely by God. We see beauty within ourselves, and it is there in every single one of us, but we don't want to take the time to express our gratitude to God for it. We want the freedom to create who we are without any sort of restraints, even restraints on our physical bodies, and we certainly don't want our creator meddling in our business of what we do with our bodies. We don't want him to give us any sort of limitations or rules. We want justice, but not a judge. We want grace, but to never admit our need. We want happiness, but on our own terms. We want freedom, but we want it from any other source other than God. We are more like the prodigal son than we care to admit. We want the good life, but we don't want to listen. And we would lose our minds if we found out that God was actually the source of the good life because we want to be the source. And as long as the car keeps running, we don't need to be right with God. But in wise blood, Hazel loses his car. And in Jesus' story, the son spends all his money. And what we find out is this unbelievable truth. Our pursuit of happiness through personal autonomy is fragile. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you got to the point where you realized money couldn't buy you love. The procedure couldn't make you happy. Self-discovery didn't make you much different than what you were before. That life without restraints, you found restraints. And so we have a son that leaves home, wastes his entire inheritance, parting it up. And he ends up at rock bottom. But again, we've heard this story before, right? It's not shocking or surprising. Some of you right now in this moment are thinking maybe, yeah, 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 Brandon, I got it. I've heard this before. Doing my own thing without God my way, I can ruin my life. Just normal religious mumbo jumbo from a normal preacher on a normal Sunday. But Jesus isn't done. Verse 17. When he came to himself, this is the son, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. At rock bottom, in a moment of clarity, the son realizes that his new life is terrible. He's at the bottom. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're there today. And at the bottom, he thinks about his father's house. But instead of it being now a source of his problems, now it seems like the solution. 
And instead of his father being an overbearing tyrant, now he seems like a caring provider. Heck, his dad even cares for his servants. That's when it hits him. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough? His new life, his new friends, his new experiences, even this new low point, everything's changed in his life but one thing. See the phrase, my father, he remembers his father is still his father. And he remembers what sort of father he actually is. And so he makes a new plan. It's like, I'm going home. I'm going to own up to it all. The terrible things that I said, what I did, my wasteful, reckless life, I'm owning up to it all. I'm going to say that I was wrong. I'm going to tell him that I know I sinned against God and I, against, and I know I sinned against him. And I'm going to tell my dad, I don't need anything else from you. Just this one thing. Can I just be a servant here? This is a good place. It's a good house. I just want to be a servant here. That's what he does. Verse 20. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Friends, this is the surprise of the story. The surprise is that the son gets grace, not justice. He deserves a cold shoulder. He deserves a distant stare. He deserves a speech. This is what he should have gotten from his dad. Hold up. You left here so full of yourself. You chose my money over me. You're probably doing it again right now. You're only back here because you hit rock bottom. And you want what from me now? It's what he should have gotten. But instead of the speech or the cold shoulder or the distant stare, he was met when he was still far away. Instead, he's embraced and kissed. Instead, he's interrupted in the middle of his apology. He can't even finish, finish his speech of repentance. And immediately his dad's like, get him a robe. Let's put some shoes on this kid's feet. Give him the family ring so everybody knows he's fully reinstated into this family. And let's party. Let's celebrate. Because when he was away from home, it was like he was dead. But now that he's back, he is alive. He's lost. Guess what? He's found. Let's party. And the father spares no expense in welcoming him home. You see, this story, while on the surface, might seem like a story of a reckless, wasteful, prodigal son who humbly comes back home. I think the surprise, the thing that Jesus wants you to get in this story is it's actually about an extravagant father, a wasteful, over-the-top father. The story is about a prodigal father who loves extravagantly, a father who gives when he should take, who receives when he should reject, who embraces when he should chide, who celebrates when he should complain. And in the crowd that day, just like here, Hearing Jesus teach that story were a bunch of folks who were rebellious and broken, lost and disobedient. 
A bunch of people that didn't need anybody to convince them that they were like this younger son. A bunch of people who had pursued their own freedom by rejecting God. A bunch of people who wanted God's blessing but not God himself. A bunch of people who had tried to free themselves from God and religion and they had found themselves broken and in need. And I would be willing to bet today in this crowd there's a bunch of people in the same boat. And Jesus wants you to know that God is a prodigal God who pours out his love and affection on the broken, lost, disobedient, and rebellious. In fact, God is so generous towards the undeserving that we could accuse him of being reckless or wasteful. Could you imagine this father's friends at the coffee shop the next morning? Everybody's settling in, right? What's going on? Catching up on the town gossip. Somebody says, oh, I, I heard Junior came back. What'd you do? <laughs> we got him a robe. We put shoes on his feet, the best shoes in the house. I gave him his ring back, so he's a member of the family now. We partied all night long. Can you imagine his friends coldly being like, you did what for him? Are you insane? How much did that cost? You think he's worth that? And Jesus is pointing us to the very grace of a heavenly father. That when we actually experience his grace, it should cause us to pause and step back and go, he's like that? He would do that for that person? And maybe ask the question, maybe today, would he do that for me? This is a picture of God's grace. What's God's grace? Of Miller Erickson says, grace is that God deals with his people not on the basis of their merit or worthiness, what they deserve but simply according to their need. In other words, he deals with them on the basis of his goodness and generosity. When we say God is gracious, we are saying something incredible. We are saying that God does not deal with us according to his own or our own worthiness. That God's heart to relate to us is based on his goodness, his generosity, not our goodness or our lack of goodness. And that's the picture that Jesus wants us to get out of the story. That God is gracious. That it's grace that allows you to find out that you're wrong. That it's God's grace that sees you far away, even when he shouldn't be looking your direction. It's grace that has compassion when it should burn with anger. It's grace that runs to meet you when it should stay at home. It's grace that embraces when he should turn away. It's grace that gives a kiss when he should give a harsh word. It's grace that gives restoration before restitution can even be attempted. It's grace that brings lost, dead, and alienated back into the family as sons and daughters. It's grace that throws a party when it should have an intervention. It's grace that eats, drinks, and celebrates when it should be reviewing the household rules. It's grace that loves reckless 
wasteful, rebellious sons and daughters. And in this story, Jesus is looking at the crowd and saying, that's what God is like. Paul says something similar in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. See this phrase? According to the riches of his grace. Now, a rich man might give out of his riches. But he says God gives according to his riches. Not just writing a check out of his bank account, but writing a check that resembles the magnitude of his bank account. It'd be like this, Jeff Bezos. If Jeff Bezos was to give a homeless guy downtown five bucks, he would be giving out of his riches, right? Man, I got plenty. I could spare $5 for you. But if Jeff Bezos was going to give according to his riches, oh, now we're talking about something different. Now we're talking about rides to outer space. Weekends on the yacht. Some Amazon stock. Do you see the difference? you understand the difference? And so Paul says, God gives out of the riches of his grace. Brandon, how do we know that to be true? Let's back up in the verse. What's the first phrase? In him. He's talking there about Jesus. That we know God gives according to the riches of his grace because God gave himself. Because God came, the story of the Bible tells us, in person. That he didn't send another servant or another prophet or another teacher, but he came. He came. Jesus came, God in the flesh. God showed up. He didn't wait in heaven like a jilted father waiting in the house. He showed up. But unlike the father of the story in Luke 15, God came all the way. And Jesus lived a perfect life, the life that we were all intended to live. And Jesus, there's more. What's the next phrase? Through his blood. We, knew God, we know God's gracious to us because Jesus laid down his life for us on the cross. That Jesus paid in full the penalty that we owed to God. In Luke 15, who paid for the party? The son? No. In Luke 15, who cut the check for his wild living? The son? No. Jesus is saying there's a story here about a God who loves so much that he's willing to sacrifice himself. So Jesus shows up, dies on the cross, paying the full penalty, everything that we owe because of our sin and rebellion, he pays it in full. When he dies, it is, the Bible teaches us, a vicarious death. Some of you dads could be accused of living vicariously through your son. What does that mean? You're trying to live out your own life through him. So when we talk about Jesus dying vicariously, we mean that Jesus died for us in our place. He pays for our sin in full so that he can, what's the phrase in the verse? Redeem us? That means so that he could buy us back to a relationship with God. So he wrote the check, what we owed to God, eliminating our debt so that we could be invited into the house, free and clear, redeemed, restored. 
so that we could have a robe on us, a ring on our finger, shoes on our feet. And then he says the forgiveness of our trespasses. That we could be forgiven for everything that we had done to rebel against God from our past. That all of those sins are heaped upon Jesus. Here's why this is necessary. Because our good deeds actually can't erase our past. You ever noticed that before? You could be the best person that you could be to try to make up for something that you had done in the past. But it never goes away. And our good deeds can't erase that. Meaning from this moment on, if you lived the very best life you could live, there's still the problem of your past. Unless you come to Christ. And Jesus gives us the freedom that we've actually been looking for this entire time, the freedom from sin. The freedom from guilt, the freedom from shame, the freedom from having to justify ourselves to prove that we're right. He gives us the freedom that we've been looking for. And you know what he requires of you? I love this. This is what Tim Keller says. The prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know you need it. That's it. No classes to take, no rules to follow. No certain number of church services to attend. No prereqs, except for this one, that you and I come to a place in our lives where we admit that we need God. Where we see this myth of our own personal autonomy shattered. That we know we can't find our own freedom through all the many ways that we pursue it. We need God. We need God to redeem us. We need God to forgive us. We need God to give us significance and meaning by bringing us, welcoming us back into his family. The prereq is you just go, I can't save myself. I need someone to save me. I need Jesus. So if we come to that point, what do we do? If somebody in this room is at that point right now, what do you do? It's very simple, but it's radically life-changing. First, you just have to come to God honestly. This is who I am. This is what I've done. And I know I can't fix it on my own. The church language there is that we admit that we are sinners. That just means I'm honest. God, this is who I am. This is what I've done. I can't fix it on my own. Then we say this, but I know who can. And I trust and believe your promise that Jesus already paid the penalty for my sin. And so I am going to believe or trust in Jesus. Romans chapter 10, Paul says that if we confess that Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Whoever, he says in in that chapter, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we just come to Jesus. Say, I need you to save me. I trust you to save me. I'm leaning on you to save me. You and you alone. And then God does the work of saving. If you're already a believer in Jesus today, then my hope and prayer is that this would be a reminder. It is so easy, even for those of us who follow Christ, to be pulled back into guilt and shame. To be pulled back into thinking that happiness is being free from God. May today remind us that we have a good, loving, gracious, heavenly Father who does not stop loving once you become a Christian, continues to love and treat you with grace and mercy. My hope and prayer for Christians today is that would fill you with confidence and joy today. And then finally, for, a church, for our church, I wonder what it would look like if we embraced this sort of character of God as being true. I, I wonder how it would impact our, impact our church if we truly believed that God is gracious or that God extends his love to the undeserving. I have a feeling it would radically change the way that we interact with our neighbors and friends and coworkers. And it wouldn't be a program or a secret Bible study. It would just be being convinced that God is exactly who Jesus says that he is. I love this from Jen Oshman. I, I think this points us to what our community needs from us so badly right now. Here's what she says. Our homes and our hearts will hold out hope when our neighbors and loved ones are exhausted from trying to keep up with the idols of our age. The warm steadiness of Christ followers will be a porch light in the dark night. Man, could we be that? So today, if you came not knowing Christ, a friend invited you, you heard there was free food, you stumbled in here not knowing what to expect. And what you've experienced is a recognition of your need. And what you've experienced is a draw to Jesus to save. And then we would encourage you today, trust Christ. You can leave today on right terms with God, free from sin and guilt and shame. If you came today as a believer of Jesus, but just caught up the grind, And you can leave today in freedom, being reminded that you have a gracious, loving, heavenly Father. And if you came today, perhaps looking down your nose at the undeserving, then maybe today is a day of repentance. We say, Father, if you're gracious, if you extravagantly love the undeserving, if you extravagantly love me, 
Who am I to withhold that from anyone else? Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.